Thank you, Paul and Emily. Good songs to remind us really where our, our strength, where our hope is found, is coming back, uh, seeking after the Lord. It fits in well with where we'll be in Scripture today. Um, but probably one thing I should have mentioned um, in my talking about uh, the love for life is uh, we did have a new birth within our church family this week. Uh, Stephen and Aubrey Carey's uh, little boy was born this week. Uh, Daniel, I believe, is his name. Nine pounds, seven ounces, big boy. So, uh, but be in prayer uh, for them as they start into the adventure of uh, parenting a child outside the womb. And so, and all, of the, all that that entails, but also congratulations uh, can go their way as well. So, all right, uh, we'll turn in your Bibles with me now, if you would, again to John chapter 6. And uh, uh, the Apostle John put together uh, these, this fairly lengthy chapter. Um, and uh, when chapters were actually put in into the Bible later, that was recognized that, that Jesus was doing something here that kind of all fits together. I think uh, chapter 7 really does fit together well as a unit, that Jesus was working uh, to to bring some understanding, I think, first of all, to his 12 disciples that were following him, but then also uh, to crowds of people who noticed that he was doing miracles, that he was doing signs, and, and had begun to follow him. And there, there were things that he, he wanted them to understand, or at least have the opportunity to understand, that were, that were really critical. And in fact, this is really seen as a turning point in his public ministry. And uh, remember the beginning of the chapter, you know, the people had followed him over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee because they'd seen him doing miracles. And they wanted to see more miracles, right? They wanted to see this, this man who could make people well and heal people. And they're out in the countryside, they're out in the middle of nowhere, and Huge crowds had followed him, as we estimated, anywhere from ten to 20,000 people are following Jesus out, you know, to places where there, there is no place to get food. And you remember, as the day is drawing on, you know, Jesus has a concern for the people. The disciples' concern is, is raised for them, and you know, they discover, what do we have for resources? Well, not, not even close to enough money to buy so everybody could just have a bite. Um, you know, Philip comes back with a report. Well, we found five loaves and two fish. A little boy's lunch. Hmm. How far is that going to go with thousands and thousands of people? And of course, you probably heard the story many times, the account. But Jesus actually takes that little bit that was available, multiplies it, feeds these ten to 20,000 people. Because remember, it was just the 5,000 men, but then there were women and children as well. Until everyone is full. Until they've had all that they want. And then they gather 12 baskets full as leftovers. Well, those are some leftovers, right? When you end up with more than you started with. And he demonstrates there that he is in fact both compassionate, but that he is the creator, right? You don't feed that many people with that little food without creating food. Jesus, as creator God, created that food from that little bit that they started with. 
that should have just turned people's minds inside out, right? Well, the one, one impact that we're told in, in the chapter that really came about from that is, is that people said, oh, well, he must be the prophet, uh, the, the one promised back in Deuteronomy to Moses. God told Moses, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brethren. And so they were expecting someone who could do things like Moses did, and as they saw, well, Moses, well, with Moses there was manna. Then maybe this guy fed us bread from we don't know where. Maybe this is him. Well, what's their first thing they want to do? Bow down and worship him? No. Force him to become king. Because he can feed us. He could feed our armies if we wanted to, to try to overthrow the Romans, right? Let's make him king. And Jesus says, not, this is not the time. Remember, he, he heads off to the mountain after sending his disciples out to head across the Sea of Galilee. Lesson two, they get out there. They're rowing, rowing. The wind comes up. They're rowing and rowing, but they're not really getting anywhere. After hours on the lake, Jesus is watching from the other side. Jesus goes to them, walking across the water. They notice him. You would too, wouldn't you? In fact, the word that's used there is that they, they really look in and they're, they're studying the details about who this is. Other Gospels tell us they thought it was a ghost. Seems a, a logical explanation, right? But here's the one who had created everything. And the Gospel of Mark tells us, well, they didn't learn the lesson from the multiplying of loaves because their hearts were hardened. And Jesus says to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. He gets into the boat. The lake goes calm. And they're suddenly where they were headed. This is just a lesson for the disciples. Nobody else witnesses this. Nobody else experiences this. But Jesus says, did you get what the lesson of the loaves was? Did you understand who I am? Now look. And by the way, the, the, if you remember, the, the situation where Jesus was in the boat and he calms the sea, or that already, they'd already had that once, that, that experience. Now here Jesus walks across the water, uh, as we looked at the Old Testament, talked about God tramples the waves. I kind of see that as what he was doing. And they're moved to worship at that point, but they're still, still haven't quite gotten it. So they get to Capernaum. Uh, the other Gospels tell us Jesus heals some more people. Uh, they end up then at, at the synagogue, and, and a, at least a part of that crowd follows him over to Capernaum. I don't think those thousands and thousands of people ended up in the synagogue where we're told Jesus speaks these words, but he begins that dialogue with them. What are they looking for? Well, Jesus makes it very clear. You're not here because you saw signs and are looking at what the signs were pointing to, but you're here because you were filled up with food, and that's what you want. And so... Verse 26 is really where he says that. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. He goes right to their heart. What is it that you really want? Is it me that you're after here? Or is it just the benefits that are provided by being in my vicinity? Now Jesus, in the rest of the chapter, is going to give them opportunity to move from just looking for bread to verse 29. 
Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. Here's what you, where you need to come, where you need to get to, that you believe in him. Or I'm sorry, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he, God, has sent. Not just believe me, but believe in me and trust yourself to me. I'm the one God has sent, yes. You got that right when you're talking about the prophet. But you need to entrust yourself to me. It's not that you have a list of things to do to get right with God, but you need to trust the one God sent. Put your life in my hands. They're not at that point. And so now there's this discussion back and forth where Jesus will be giving them every reason and every evidence and every opportunity to get to where verse 29 is talking about. And that's really the subject of all that follows. Believe in the one that God has sent. So follow along with me then, if you, if, if you would, if, as I continue in verse 30 on down to verse 40. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not only to do my own will, or not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And you'll notice when you get to verse 30, after Jesus has told them, here, here, they wanted a work to do. He said, well, here, here's the purpose God has for you, believing in the one that God sent. And they reply back, so they said to him, verse 30, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Uh, they, they turn it back on Jesus. He's, he's given them something very straightforward to do, to entrust themselves to him. And, he's, and they're saying, oh, well, we want a sign. It seemed, seemed in the, just right before that, they were willing just to do whatever he said, right? What work shall we do? We can do the works of God. Sounding like the people of Israel. Oh, whatever you say, we will do, right? And they avoid Jesus' call to just trust him, entrust themselves to him. 
He gave a call to be believing, to begin believing in him in an ongoing way. He uses the present tense there. And they say, oh, give us a sign so that we can believe you. I don't know if you notice, there's, there's an important distinction there. He tells them to be believing in him. They say, well, you give us a sign and then we'll believe you. Well, they're not talking about an ongoing relationship. They're saying, oh, well, we need proof so that we can even believe what you're telling us here. Not a matter of entering into a relationship like he's called them to. But they say, give us another sign. How about a sign like Moses? Moses, you know, he, he gave them, our, manna, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. You know, like the Bible said, he says he, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And remember back in verse 14, they were, they were wondering after he'd fed them, oh, is this the prophet? Uh, remember how they they'd thought back to Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19. You know, it's where, where God tells Moses, I will send a prophet like you. Raise him up from among your brethren. But they also said they'd be responsible for whatever he said, right? He told them, you're going to have to do, keep all the things that he tells you, or I myself will call you to account. But now they're thinking, well, let's see. If you're really the, the prophet like Moses, well, do stuff like Moses did. Moses gave bread out of heaven. We'd like some more bread. In fact, we'd like bread in an ongoing way. You know, the people ate manna for 40 years in the wilderness. That would be a good sign. Feed us like Moses did. After all, Moses can do that, and you're this prophet. You might even be able to do better than that, right? Now remember, they've already seen Jesus feed this massively large crowd. And originally they came to Jesus because they'd already seen him doing miracles and healing. They're demonstrating really that, Jesus, what, that what Jesus said back in verse 26 is true. They're not there because the signs pointed them to the reality of who he is. They're there for what they could get. They were there because when they were around Jesus, the good things they want happened. Their hearts were set on temporary things. Their hearts were set on eating another time. Their hearts were set on a healing for this temporary illness in this temporary life. And they're demanding of him that he do what they want. You see where our hearts as sinners get us into big trouble? We come to God and we say, well, God, do this for me. Or we get angry. Well, God, you didn't do that for me. You didn't fix this like I wanted. You didn't provide me with this that I wanted. So I'm, I'm not going to believe in you. As though we know more than he does. As though our wisdom is greater than his wisdom. So Jesus continues teaching. He's working, giving them an opportunity with his words to correct their attitude. Uh, the, the end of verse 31 Notice they, uh, in your Bible, it's probably in all caps or italics in some way. They're, they're quoting from the Old Testament. Um, and we can go to Psalm 78, verse 24, as the most likely place it's quoted from. But there are a number of places um, where 
uh, this verse could come from, but this fits really the, the best. And it's interesting that Psalm 78, in the section where we find that quote about he gave them bread from heaven, um, you can see there in 78.24, he rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. It even goes on and said, man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. You think, oh, wow, that, that's probably a really nice psalm. You know, kind of make you feel good. Guess what? what? What the psalmist is doing there is talking about how rebellious Israel was and how much they were complaining. God had led them out of captivity, out of Egypt from being slaves, was leading them to the promised land. And you know what they were doing? They were whining and complaining. We don't have any food. Oh, that we would go back to Egypt where we had plenty to eat. They complain, oh, we wish we had meat like we did back in Egypt. And their whole attitude is one not of, of gratitude and trusting God and saying, God, please provide what we need. We are your people. They were complaining to God. And God graciously gives them bread out of heaven. He also gives them quail to eat. And you remember there was a plague that came along with that one where they gorged themselves with the the meat of the quails, God sends a plague because they're complaining and they're, they're ungrateful hearts and, and hearts that are just focused on the now and the temporary. And so they quote out of this psalm, hoping to get more and just being like their ancestors who had done the same thing and provoked God's wrath on them. Their hearts had been set on temporary things and Jesus here has another one of his truly, truly, or remember we, we've, as we've gone through John, it's pay close attention when Jesus says this. Listen to what he has to say because it's kind of like underlining. Truly, truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. Oh, you notice there, it doesn't say that Moses gave it. It's the Lord who gave it to them. And every other place that you could pick, that maybe that's the, where they got the quote from. Now, every place it says, the Lord gave them bread out of heaven. So they can't even fix their attention on God to realize that he was actually the giver of the manna. They focused on a man, on Moses, simply God's servant, who was there at the time. And that God used to point out and give them those instructions. Jesus clarifies very strongly, no, that manna, that food from heaven came from God, from Yahweh. And as he continues on, makes it clear, for the bread of God is that which comes down of heaven and gives life to the world. Well, how can it give life to the world? Well, well he's told them back in verse 32 that it, it's actually not just bread that you eat, but he says it's the true bread, the true bread that comes from heaven. And he says it in the present tense, that that which is coming down out of heaven gives life to the world. And verse, into verse 32, my father 
is giving or keeps on giving you true bread out of heaven. That word true should have them say, well, what do you mean true bread? Bread is bread is bread, right? And yet, what he's saying is bread points you to reality that goes far beyond that stuff that you put in your, in your mouth. I mean, there's the gift of bread that's, that's a daily staple, right? And, and for the, the people of Israel, bread was, was kind of the main thing that you ate. If you didn't have anything else for a meal, you had bread. It was the staple. It's the thing that kept you alive. And, and we're, we're so blessed that we, oh, do you have some bread to add to the meal? Uh, so much of the world, you have bread or you have rice or you have something. That, that's your meal. And so every once in a while, you get to add in some meat or some other things. But here, the picture of bread is that which gives you life, that sustains you, that keeps you going in life, that keeps your body going. And so when he says the true bread, he's not saying that the bread that they ate every day was false bread. But the idea behind it is that, that the word true here is that the bread you eat, and then even the manna, is really just a picture of what is ultimately bread. That which gives you real life. You could say bread exists to help us know what the true bread is. It's a picture. It's a shadow. Physical bread is just to help you get an idea, a greater idea, a spiritual idea, an ultimate idea that God wants for us. So first of all, it's what you put in your mouth. You eat day in and day out, right? The heavenly manna is actually an even better picture. It takes it further. It gives us a, more of an idea of what the true bread is because God provided that daily sustenance each day out of heaven. It came from God. And the people had no way of making it happen. They couldn't make manna come, but God put it out there. They couldn't even gather up a whole bunch of it and hoard it. God said, no, you need to gather enough for this day. And if they tried to gather more than that, it got worms in it. It went bad. But on the, you know, before the Sabbath, they could gather enough for two days, and it didn't go bad. So they were dependent on God's wisdom and God's plan and God's design that's a great picture of what ultimate bread is, that which ultimately gives life. They had to trust God to keep on providing what they needed, but they had to trust Him every day, day in, day out, and to do it His way if they were going to continue to have bread to sustain their physical bodies. But Jesus says, but wait, there's more. There's the bread of God. He speaks of a bread coming down out of heaven. And in fact, he says it's happening now. Even now it is coming down and continues to be coming down out of heaven. And doesn't just feed the Israelites, but keeps on giving life to the world. He wants them to make the jump with him and the understanding to the ultimate idea of what bread is. He wants their souls be hungry for what they truly need instead of trying to be satisfied with the stuff of this life, the stuff of this world, thinking, well, if I, we could just have enough food, then life would be good. We could just, we'd be happy. 
If they had that, were the Israelites in the wilderness happy? No, they, they, how many times did they complain? How many times did they turn against Moses because they didn't have what they thought they should have? But he says there is a true bread which satisfies. In verse 34, the people start to get a little excited. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. We want it. Unfortunately, they didn't make the jump with him. Their minds were still on this daily bread that they put in their mouth that would keep their bodies alive for a little bit longer. They still had their eyes fixed on physical food. And he said, give it to us always. Yeah, we want an endless supply of this bread you're talking about. They had no concept that it was something much greater than food. Just like the woman of the well. Remember back in, in John chapter 4, just a few chapters back, verse 15, you know, he's talking to her about living water. And she says, said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. She hadn't made the jump with him that living water had to do with her soul and her life with God forever. Here, they didn't understand that when he talked about bread, he's talking about that which gives you life into eternity, but also a quality of life that is different than what you have now. And so they yeah, give us the bread. Just like the woman said, yes, give me the water. And so Jesus then is very clear. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And here he, he pulls out that name of the covenant God, the creator God, and he says, I am, or Yahweh. Now, when he spoke to them on the sea, there's some debate about whether when he said, it is I, whether he was saying, I am. Here, there's no doubt. He very purposely is identifying himself as the creator God. In fact, this is the beginning of, of a total of seven times when John will point out that Jesus said to them, I am and then defined himself in his character and in the actions that he would take. Whether it was, I am the door to the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world. He begins here, helping them say, understand, I'm God, and this is what I'm like, and you need to adjust your thinking in this way. I am the bread of life. If they want real life, not just a continued existence for a few more hours or days based on what they've eaten, he's what they need. They need to come and draw life from him. Coming to him and believing in him are parallels. They mean basically the same thing. Uh, the coming implies, oh, I have a need. Where am I going to go to have my need fulfilled? Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, and your hunger will be satisfied. Or in the same way, believe in me, and your thirst will be forever quenched. He says, I'm the one who satisfies. You can come to me and have that true satisfaction. Like his words to the woman at the well. If you go back to chapter 4 again, verses 13 and 14, he basically told her the same thing. 
says, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water, the water in the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I have for you that which completely satisfies and goes on satisfying again and again and again. He is the ongoing and continual source of real spiritual life. Not just enough to keep your tongue from getting dry or your throat or your body from becoming dehydrated, but that which your soul needs continually provided for day after day, hour after hour, year after year. In fact, in, in, in the Greek words that Jesus uses, he piles up negatives there when he says this. He says that he who, who believes in me will not hunger, will not in any way ever hunger or thirst. It's not just, no, you won't hunger or you won't thirst, but he piles up negatives, which is the way they would do in Greek to really emphasize something. No, not in any way. It will not happen. Come to me. I will satisfy your spirit, your soul. He has what we need for truly, truly for life. Now understand, we don't always perceive very well, do we? Sometimes we think, but my soul is so thirsty and dry, Lord. So often that's because we're not going to Him and taking advantage of what is ours. If it's springing up within us as a well, it's there. Or are we making, taking advantage of it? Are we drinking in Him by being in His Word, by learning who He is and what He is like and where He's going? Or have we stopped and said, well, I've had enough. I'll be okay for now. I can just kind of slide. No, it's a continual taking in as well, isn't it? Of knowing Him and who He is and what He brings to our lives. But the problem is, we have people with unbelieving hearts here still. As Jesus looks out, He knows. They're not buying into this, at least not all of them. Verse 36, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Remember what they they'd said earlier back in verse 30? What do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? He's saying you have seen. What are you lacking? They've had plenty to see, right? And haven't chose to enter into believing him. The problem, the problem isn't with the evidence. They've watched him do incredible miracles. They've heard him teach. They've been invited. Come. It's not with a lack of opportunity. They've had that, right? They've had plenty of both. They've seen him cure and heal and renew people to life. But they're not believing. By the way, we need to remember that too. When we're sharing the gospel, it's not a... Not, necessarily a matter that we didn't do it quite right, that we didn't give enough information, that, that we didn't give enough opportunity. Jesus gave them every opportunity perfectly, didn't he? And yet they still said, we want another sign. 
We want another miracle. We want more information. We want another opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep working to make our presentation and our information and all of those things better. But understand, that's not the main roadblock to belief. Verse 37a, the first part of it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Which tells us that all believers are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Right? It's kind of an amazing thing to ponder if you are a believer. It's that God, out of, God the Father out of love gave me to His Son, Jesus. And therefore I came and I believed. But it also should be very, very humbling because we haven't believed because we were smart enough. We haven't believed because we were perceptive enough. We haven't believed because we were wise enough. It took, took a work of God in us for us to believe. And we should humbly say, wow, why did I believe when someone else who I know is much more intelligent, has a lot more going for them, has a lot more information, didn't believe. God worked. I understand that's also far beyond our ability to comprehend and understand and be careful about trying to dive into the mind of God and define how that all happens and what it's about. It's gotten a lot of people in trouble and caused a lot of division and problems. Jesus simply said, here that the Father gave them, and so they'll come. But notice the other half of verse 37. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You say the door's open wide. Anyone who comes says, I'm not going to throw him out. So understand, Jesus has the invitation. It's wide open. All who come. There's ample evidence for all. We are responsible as human beings for taking advantage of Jesus' gifts. So should we sit around and try to figure out what's going on in the mind of the Trinity? No. We should respond and say, I come to you, Jesus, I have great need. Give me of the bread of heaven. Give me of yourself. Give me eternal life. I see my need for a Savior. And entrust yourself to Him right now if you haven't already. That'd be my call right now. Don't worry about what's going on in the mind of God in your circumstance. If He's working in your heart right now, if you come to Him and you believe, He says He will not cast you out, He'll not throw, but in fact, He will give you that life. And as He continues on in verses 38 through 40, he tells us how wonderful that is. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will, verse 39, of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. There is a certainty of eternal life for all those who come. Or as He's already shown from, from the parallel, all those who begin believing in Him. He is the one who does the keeping. He keeps us. He is the one who never leaves us, never forsakes us once we become His. And not only that, he says here, 
I will raise, I will not lose them, but I will raise them up on the last day. This point is critical. And he'll repeat it three more times in this chapter. Jesus personally guarantees the resurrection to new life for all those who will come to him. I will raise it up on the, on the last day. And it's a permanent relationship. It's a permanent relationship, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, by the way, another one of those present tense verbs, who, keep, who, who keeps on beholding the Son, and believes, enters into a pattern of believing in Him, will have, will keep on having eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. There's our second time of emphasizing that, right? So let's just look at each of those verbs. He, he who beholds. And Jesus uses the same word here that John used to describe when the disciples saw Jesus out on the water. They beheld him. They saw him. Doesn't mean they, they were rowing and rowing and they glanced up. Oh, there's Jesus. No, they stopped everything they were doing. They looked and they were taking in all the details. They wanted to know who this was and what it was all about and how this was happening. Now Jesus takes that same word and he says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son to know him, stops, perceives him, is taking in the details, wants to know who he is. And most of those listening were really only seeing Jesus as the miracle worker, right? They were stopping and they were beholding. They were looking carefully at the food. Uh, they were looking carefully at the people who had been healed. He says, no, here, those who behold the Son, they're looking at Him and saying, oh, what is this man who is the Son of God like? They weren't really seeing the miracles for what they were, appointing to him. The evidence that Jesus is God, the Savior. But those who believe will stop first. Before they believe, they stop, they look, and they carefully are looking to get to know him. The next part of that is that everyone who beholds the Son and believes or, or enters into a life of believing in Him, that's the present tense there, indicates that, an ongoing relationship of trust. So it's not just believing Him, like they said, do a sign and we will believe you, what you said. No, He's calling them to enter into a lifestyle of believing in Him, that idea of entrusting yourself to Him because you said, yes, you are the one, therefore my life should be yours. Now that doesn't mean that if you don't believe long enough or hard enough or well enough that Jesus will not save you. Oh, I'm not believing well enough anymore so Jesus dumps me alongside the road. Now remember what he'd said already. He will not lose one of us, right? But he says, I will raise them up on the last day. He does the holding on to you. It doesn't depend on you to hold on to Jesus. Jesus has got you. And of course, in being with him, what will you want to do? 
Oh, you'll want to hold on to Jesus, right? You'll have your struggles. You'll have your times like a little kid. <laughs> kind of let go, right? Jesus holds on to you. He will not lose one of those that, the, that are his that have believed. Don't forget that he's talking about an ongoing, permanent relationship. Because then he says, and they will have what? Eternal life. Again, a present tense verb, they will be having in an ongoing way. So it starts at the point when they begin when you begin believing, and it's eternal life from that point, never ending. It belongs to every believing one now, goes on into eternity. The bread from heaven, Jesus, feeds us continually and without end the real life that we need from the point of belief. It is eternal life. And Jesus ends this section of his, his discourse with these people or his interaction with them with an absolute and unequivocal statement of certainty when he says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's the second time, again, that he's emphasized this truth. And he makes it personal. I myself We'll do this. And it's building on what he said back in John chapter 5. If you look back at verses 25 through 29, he's already, when he was in Jerusalem, pointed out that he has the power of life and of resurrection. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life, in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Remember what Jesus told them? I, I am the one who judges. Oh, who judges? Well, only God. I am the one who resurrects to life. Who can do that? Only God. And now as he talks to these people about himself being the bread of life, he says, one day I will raise those who are mine to life. Even when their physical bodies die, they will be raised to life as well to continue with their souls, their spirit, into eternity. He is the giver of life. Now, Jesus is still in the early parts of this teaching. We've got another couple of sections as he continues on. And this whole teaching is designed to shift hearts to himself and what is eternal away from the things that are physical and temporary. The daily physical needs and our temporary desires of this life do pull on us hard, don't they? Our hearts and our minds we're reminded again and again, oh, you, you need to have this. You really want to have this. And they pull ass. And Jesus is saying, now those things in and of themselves may not be bad. But what you are and what you need is so much more. Get your eyes up on the eternal. Come to me for what you truly need. And Jesus challenges us to take the time to consider our lives 
and realize that we truly, what we truly need can be found in him alone. You can't go anywhere else to any other teacher, to any other source, to anything else, and get what you need. Entering into the gift of eternal life comes by taking the time to stop, stop and contemplate him for who he truly is, and trust yourself to him to forgive you of your sins, to give you eternal life, and to raise you up when that day comes. And continuing your walk with him requires stepping away from the things that scream at you in life. Oh, you have to do this now. You have to have this now. Or you have to be working hard toward having this or that. Fill in the blank with whatever it is in your life. But it's, some of the things are very common. Other things are individually designed to get us off of focus, right? They scream out. And so you have to keep on coming back, remembering who Jesus is. That's why Jesus gave the invitation recorded in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest because I will be for you what you truly need. And you can quit your striving after the things that don't really matter. Father, we thank you for these words recorded from Jesus, uh, given by you for us as, as you, the Father, work in perfect harmony with the Son. And now we ask that your Spirit would apply them to our hearts as we need them. Um, go right to the places where we are being distracted from knowing Jesus and doing what truly matters and being Pulled into just doing the things that God, or that, <laughs> that pulled into uh, the things that the world thinks are important, that our bodies scream at us to do. Help us to know that, that though we do need to be re responsible to care for our physical needs and bodies, that that's really not what's most important. That we need to, more than anything, nurture our relationship with you by knowing you, by by knowing your son Jesus and, and allowing him by your spirit to, to fill us up with, with truth, uh, with your love, with your, uh, your wisdom and understanding for this life. We're so thankful that you do provide in, in such abundance that we should never really be able to say we are hungry because we lack what we truly need. Help us to, to come back to, to that again and again, continually. In Jesus' name I pray.